The real thing about gender and leadership that's so unique is that women have two expectations when they are leaders. One is their gender role expectations, uh, but then there's also the leader expectation, and that's to be in charge, to be confident, to be to have that command presence. And so, to do both of those all the time is is really complex. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duran Jr. In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Stephanie Johnson is an author, professor, and keynote speaker who studies the intersection of leadership and diversity. Her new book, Inclusify, Harnessing the Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams, shares the surprising ways that leaders undermine inclusion and provides actionable ways that leaders can pivot to build more inclusive teams and why they should. As an associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder's Leeds School of Business, Dr. Johnson teaches undergraduate and graduate students focused on leadership and inclusion. Today, we talk about gender equality with her and also diversity in leadership and why that's important to highly innovative teams and also why mental health is a new focus for organizational success. Stephanie, thanks for joining us. I, I want to just jump in and ask you to tell us a little bit about what the work is that you're doing at the university um, around leadership, both, you know, whether it's uh, in your teaching experience uh, or research or any of the groups that you're a part of, but give us an, an overview of what you're working on. Absolutely. So I am a business professor at Leeds at the university. So I teach leadership. I'm right now teaching an MBA course on ethical and inclusive leadership. I'll teach undergraduate classes on leadership, of course, of uh, women in leadership, which is probably my favorite class. Um, and then I study leadership uh, primarily right now. I'm looking at Fortune 500 CEOs response to Black Lives Matter. I think the most exciting work that I'm doing right now is um, with you all at the Leadership Center here um, that we have just started in the last year at the University of Colorado, trying to create a hub for all students and faculty and staff across campus to have access to leadership. Why are you doing that? Where's the, what's your, what's your why behind joining the uh, Center for Leadership? That's a good question. You know, I feel like I have always been obsessed with leadership. Like as, I think as a kid, I, I feel like I was always really tall and often found myself um, in leadership roles. And I just became really interested in what makes people um, leader-like, I guess. And as a high school student in the 90s, the internet had just been invented, right? And I like, tried to learn about, can I study leadership in college? And I ended up going to the small liberal arts college, Claremont McKenna College, uh, because they had a leadership, kind of like a leadership minor. And I just wanted to learn more about it. And I wish I could say, you know, I 
had some change in my interests, but I've always just studied the same thing. Like it's, I've never figured it out. I can like continue studying um, what makes leaders effective. How can leaders appeal to everyone? Why do we view certain individuals as more leader-like than others? Um, and so I think this is just uh, more of that. And then I guess for me, it was so powerful to have access to that opportunity to learn about leadership. And I did leadership research as, you know, a 18 year old uh, college freshman. And I feel like that in many ways um, charted a path in my life that I found very positive. And so I always feel like I want to have the opportunity to create that for other people. Ron, I'm going to turn the tables on you because I know you're part of the Center for Leadership as well and um, ask you the same question. Sorry, I'm totally putting you on the spot, but I'd love, I'd love to know why we have such a diverse group of people coming together at CU to really build this ginormous animal of leadership here in Boulder, Colorado, which fascinates me being new to it. I think you'd hear echoes of what Stephanie said. You know, I, I always like to use the tagline of leading to a better future. And, you know, I'm not here to be... Gandhi or, or Nelson Mandela, that's wonderful. But I want to make my little, I don't know, my little contribution, my ripple effect to hopefully have a better future for not only, you know, our communities uh, and our country, but globally. And so I always say that my students are hopefully that ripple effect. And, and I just feel like we have a, a vacuum of good leadership in not only in the United States, but I think around the world. And it's my, I, it's my passion to try to fill that vacuum at least just a little bit. And so that's what, that's why I'm uh, associated with the Center for Leadership. And that's what, I don't know, gets me excited and gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, Stephanie, I, I picked up on women in leadership. And I've been, you know, in the engineering management program, I've actually proposed a course like that. And, and I got raised eyebrows that, a man would be suggesting that, but I, I, I'm fascinated by what I look at as a minefield for women trying to navigate the professional world. And, uh, you know, I, I read a chapter in a book, I think it was called The Psychology of Executive Coaching, and it had a whole chapter on women um, in leadership and, and all the, the like hidden things that they have to kind of deal with that I was like, wow, I had no idea. Tell us about women in leadership. What are the challenges that, that women uh, face? in the professional world? So one, I will say there is a class in engineering on women in leadership. Um, it's called, it's a new class. You may have heard about it yeah, this year, yeah. but it's called BTS Scholars. Yes. And it is a class of half business students and half engineering women. And they basically take this women in business and engineering class together. And, and what we talk about is the exact question that you asked. It's like, is it different for women? And if so, why? And how can you navigate it? The answer is yes, of course, it's different. There's challenges. You know, there's some things that are just biology. Like a lot of, I've been surprised. A lot of my young um, students think about like, well, I want to have a family. I want to have children. How can I have this career? And, you know, those are real issues and fears. And I feel like you might as well address them and have a plan for what you want to do with your career then just have it as this like fear in the back of your mind. But the real thing about gender and leadership that's so unique is that women have two expectations when they are leaders. One is their gender role expectations. And we expect women to be 
kind and sensitive. Um, the word is often communal that we use to describe it. And this is true for women leaders. It's also true for women faculty. Like try telling your class, no, you can't have an extension. And as a woman, people are like, well, that's so mean. Whereas I don't think our my male colleagues get the same response. Uh, but then there's also the leader expectation and that's to be in charge, to be confident, to be to have that command presence. And so to do both of those all the time is, is really complex. And so it's easy for women to not be seen as leader-like when they are kind and caring. And it's easy for them to violate their gender role expectations so they're not seen as woman-like, which people don't, they react negatively to um, when, when women fill that role or don't fill that role. Um, that said, you know, I think this is changing. I don't think our expectations for women are changing. We still, you know, in fact, the, these, you know, national opinion polls that have been done for the last 50 years show we expect women to be even more nurturing than we used to. Like those, those things aren't changing, but I truly believe, and I, there's data to support this, that our expectations for leaders are really changing. So that command presence, you know, style of, uh, control and command directive leadership is a lot less preferred by, or even accepted. Um, and again, like just as a, fa a faculty joke, if <laughs> you probably see this with your students too, right? Like they, if you like do it, cause I said so, like, that's just not really consistent with their expectations for how they want to contribute to their own learning environment. And the same thing happens when they enter the workforce. They're like, well, I want to know how this is benefiting me and how I'm contributing to the organization. And I think that actually works really well um, with what we think of as more feminine styles of leadership, not to say that it's only women can do it, but um, I think that's what we've seen in the pandemic across the globe. If you look at the countries that have really been the most successful at keeping infection low and even the states, there's a study on um, governors across the US and those states led by women have been much more successful for, I think for some of those reasons. What if I'm a male student and I say uh, there's nothing of value in a class about women in leadership? What would you say to that? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Um, no man has ever taken my class. Oh, and that, wow. that, that hurts my heart. I had two men enrolled the second time I taught it. So I taught it for the first time in 2016. And there were definitely a couple of eyebrows raised, even though I'm a woman teaching the class. All right. So convince me. Why should I take this course? To me, leadership is about leading all of your team. And if you're only an effective leader for half of your team, and let's just say half your team is women because they comprise half the population in the US. If you're only leading the other half effectively, that's not leadership. You really have to be leading everyone effectively. And especially as the workforce becomes more diverse, there are specific skills that um, I think male leaders need just in the same way female leaders do. And so you should take my class. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. I, I, I throw in too. I mean, taking a class uh, as a man that's labeled women in leadership is customer discovery, in my opinion, um, because if you're going to be a leader and let's say you have uh, women, female employees underneath you, part of your job, if not one of the more large parts of your job is to develop these women to grow into leaders themselves, just the same as you would develop the men that are working underneath you as well. 
And I think by taking a course, I'm guessing, I haven't taken your course, but I'm guessing coming in and taking it as a man is only going to build you into being able to empathize with women as you're developing them to become leaders themselves. Oh my gosh. I need to clip this and use it for the (laughs) advertisement for this class. No, you're exactly right. I think you said that so eloquently. I think the men who signed up for my class and didn't, who dropped it, one of them didn't show up on the first day class. And the other one was like, this is so weird though. It's like all women and a woman professor. (laughs) And one of the women in the class at the time said, my econ class is all men. She was in some advanced econ class. And he's like, no, but it's different because it's women. (laughs) It's like a lot of women. It's more weird for a man to be in like a sea of women than the way around, which I don't think it's any more weird or less weird. It's just less typical, I think, especially if you're in a masculine field. Um, But you know, I think it would be better to have a couple of men. I don't know that I would want to be, I think it would be harder to be the one man, just as it's harder to be the one woman in any group, right? Yeah. And it almost, you almost make the case for it's more important for men to take that course than maybe the women, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, to, to be able to, I don't know, understand that side of it. It's funny. I have a story where I was, I was, I do a lecture on this and we talk about uh, gender and leadership and we're having this great heated, kind of a heated discussion. It was a passionate discussion in class. And we're just going back and forth with all these, what I thought were great ideas. And all of a sudden, one of my male students said, why don't we let the women weigh in? And so here I had a course with, it was probably about half and half men and women. And all the talking was being done by the men of how this could be better and how we should do this. We should do that. And all the women were not really saying much. Now, is that on them or was that on us for, you know, kind of maybe uh, manipulating or monopolizing the, the conversation? Any thoughts on that, Stephanie? Oh, my gosh. Do women need to get in there and get into that conversation a little more forcefully? You know, I think that's the lean in kind of view, Cheryl yeah, Sandberg's yeah. book of like women just need to step up. And your class, so I think I never try to think of blame, right? Of like, well, maybe you should have done this as the instructor or the women should have done this. It's like, are you all working together to have the most productive conversation where you're going to learn the most? And so that means everyone could be stepping it up, right? The man who leaned in and said that, like, way to go, kudos to him. Um, Even my own class, I think if I had it to do over again, I would call it inclusive leadership. Like I called my MBA class, see, live and learn, right? Um, Because when you call it women and leadership, you're not being that inclusive. And if it's really about everyone, then it it shouldn't have been. We could call it gender and leadership rather than women and leadership. Um, I think if we're just pointing fingers at people, then we're not as productive as we could be if we were using all of these brilliant people to work together and come up with good solutions. And it's, you know, even in Zoom classes, I'm like, I've never taught zoom class i think i have some research to say how this is going to be effective but i need everyone else to weigh in on how this can be more effective for each of you and how i can help facilitate an effective environment for you because these like even you know my students are they're new i have there's only one student i've taught before in a previous class and so i feel like it's just all of us and and some of that is you know since leadership is my thing i I always look at the leader. Have they created an environment where people feel psychologically safe to say, 
maybe we should let the women weigh in. And if so, I mean, that means that's a success, right? Like you've done a great job creating a class environment where someone was able to say that. And maybe the other women or the women in the room should have said that too. Um, but, you know, in a lot of ways, I like, I really like the question because I think it points to the fact that sometimes it's just so much easier for a male ally to step in on behalf of women or a person of color um, to have a white ally say, you know, are we listening to the people of color? Because sometimes it's hard, unless you're like Kamala Harris and you say, you know, stop, I was speaking. Uh, I think sometimes it can be hard for anyone to point out the inequity and then go ahead and make their point. Like that's just a huge psychological load to do both. And sometimes it's just easier for someone who's not in that group to raise the point and open the floor. I'm, I'm glad you give me credit because I was, I was just like totally oblivious. <laughs> it, it was, it was amazing to me. And I think we were going to talk about maybe cognitive bias, but it was amazing to me that I didn't even get it. I didn't realize that all the men were doing the talking until one of my students pointed it out. So I was like, that was kind of a good lesson for me to, I don't know, pay a little more attention and, and make sure that everybody's voice is being heard as the facilitator of that discussion. I could have done things and I, and I do things like that now because I learned my lesson, but, but maybe that's a great lesson for all leaders and teachers faculty out there to make sure that we're, we're getting all the voices heard and, and however we need to do that. Oh, you nailed it. And there's actually some apps. Um, I don't have this particular app, but there's an app that's only, um, it was created for Mac. So if you use a Mac, you can download it and it actually codes the amount of time men and women speak during your zoom meeting. Because wow. you'll be shocked, Ron, this isn't only you. <laughs> it is like, Statistically, like there have been studies that show um, men do speak much more than women, and whether it's in classrooms or in boardrooms. Um, and you would never believe it until you saw it. Like it's like you can't see it until you see it. And then then once you see it, you can't unsee it right now <laughs> when you're in class. I'm sure you're thinking about this like it's in the back of your mind. I love the fact that there's an app. I'm going to go find that as soon as this is over because I find that fascinating. And I have a little bit of a different take on it in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of discussion over the last, you know, five years for sure. I think probably since Lean In came out even uh, longer than that uh, about we have to make room, right? If you're, if you're uh, a CEO or a male leader, you have to make room for females' voices to be heard, whether it's in the boardroom or in a group meeting. And I know that's hard for a lot of people, both men and women, to hear that um, because then it's like, why? Why do I have to make room other than it's politically correct? And I look at it from an entrepreneurial standpoint of it's not just about being politically correct or being kind or trying to even the playing field. I think it's about we can't have innovation without it. Like plain and simple, if you build an app and it's built by men, for men and women, and there's no woman on that team building that app, you're not building it correctly. And I think that goes for anything. And so this makes me think of your book. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Inclusify, the power of uniqueness and belonging to build innovative teams. That's the book you've written. And 
Um, I know this centers around diversity and inclusion, and uh, I think inclusify is your word. Um, you have you have coined that. So, do you find that we have to have all these voices, not just men and women, but diversity in general, uh, to reach innovation? Talk to us a little bit about that. The book is mostly just it's a lot of statistics to share and convey in different ways what you just said. And it's, you know, there's a lot of data um, that are correlational that show these effects, like banks with more diverse um, executive teams tend to be more profitable. Um, investors with greater diversity tend to invest more successfully. Uh, companies with more diversity have greater innovation. You can count patents that they've processed and successful products. And, and all of those are very, very powerful statistics, but they're correlational. So you don't really know what's causing what. Um, but unlike a lot of the other research we do in business for diversity and inclusion, we can show it. It's so easy. Like you can, I never say we prove anything, but it's one of the things we prove, I think pretty well that a diverse team with different perspectives is going to make a better, more accurate, creative, um, innovative decision and come up with a better solution, assuming that you have inclusion. So if you have a diverse team where you don't hear any of the women's voices, amazingly, that doesn't help, right? Like if they never speak, the decision is the same as if they were not there um, or if they're just spoken over and their ideas aren't really given attention, then it doesn't help. Uh, if you have a diverse team where a lot more conflict erupts because they can't get along, they still may come up with a better solution, actually, but they might want to quit afterward because it feels awful, right? But nonetheless, in you know, study after study after study on college students, on executives, um, diverse teams just perform better. In fact, um, so much so that uh, this area of research on what's called the wisdom of the crowd compares the decision-making abilities of diverse sets of novices, people who don't know anything about a topic. Um, for example, in one study, it was world events. So let's bring together a bunch of people who don't know, who don't have PhDs, if you can believe it, in economics or government and have them predict world events. And they outperform a homogenous group of PhDs in economics from elite institutions because they're predicting things that in this case, they haven't happened. And so if you have a diverse group of people, you're bringing in different sets of knowledge. But one of the other things that you're doing is eliminating what we call like correlated errors. Like I am going to make mistakes when I, if I have an idea, there's going to be some error and Ron has some error and Tara, you have some error. I'm sorry, you do. It doesn't seem like it, but even you have some error. <laughs> But that doesn't matter as long as whenever Ron makes an error, I say, Ron, that's actually not correct. And when I make an error, he says the same thing back. But if we both have very similar training, like if we were both business professors um, versus um, different departments, we're not going to see each other's errors because we make the same exact mistakes. And if we all make the same mistakes, we don't see it as a mistake. And that could be the course of action we choose. And so it's not just bringing in different perspectives and creativity. It's also eliminating the risk of like maybe groupthink or um, going down a very dangerous path um, because your mistakes are going to be correlated too. 
I got to get out my Kleenex because I'm, I'm got to wipe away some tears. I thought the super team would be a team of Rons. Are you telling me that's, <laughs> that's not true? No. Don't I want a team of everybody just like me? <laughs> you would think, I mean, that is, it sounds silly when you say it, it but it isn't is, that yeah. how we choose teams? I always make this joke and it's at the expense of a CU student. I'm sorry, Mariela, but I have a mentee on campus and she is a Mexican-American first-generation college student from Los Angeles, which you may or may not know this, but that is my demographic. I am a Mexican-American first-generation college student from Los Angeles. And when I met her, I was like, this woman's amazing. Like, she's so interesting. She's brilliant and delightful. And her accent from California just really feels good to me. (laughs) And I think everyone does that, right? So I use this analogy of um, you can't build a team with all quarterbacks. Like most people think, who's the star player? It's the quarterback. Um, the MVP is often the quarterback. But do you want a team of just quarterbacks? No, right? They're probably going to get crushed because the other team has offensive linemen that are going to crush your team of quarterbacks. It's like you you need different skills. And whenever you put it in a, a concrete example, people would say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like if I'm doing a case competition of my business students, which we do all the time, you might want someone who's really good at communicating, someone who's really good with stats, someone with a marketing background to bring together these different areas of expertise. But then when it comes to the workplace, we all just hire a team of Rons. (laughs) Right. (laughs) My team would be a team of stats. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, let's, uh, let's talk. You've got me, you, you have me convinced diverse teams is the way to go. I'm the CEO of a company and I'm like, okay, Stephanie, you sold me. What, uh, what does diversity mean? In the United States, usually that's going to be associated with gender and race, but it's much more than that, is it not? No, absolutely. I think if you went down the lines of gender and race, you are likely to get other types of diversity. So I think that is the way to go. Like there are people who argue, well, it's really about cognitive diversity. So if you can you can get a team of 17 white men and have the same level of diversity as you would with a gender and racially diverse group. And maybe that is theoretically possible, but it really speaks to a larger question of why do you want 17 white men if it's just easier to bring in diverse perspectives with getting racial and gender diversity. But then there's also um, sexual orientation and identity, um, ability, disability, veteran status. I think it's a group we don't often think about, but uh, from a legal perspective, we have just as many laws to protect veterans as we do women, um, age. Most of the studies are on boomers and millennials. They make, they're a great combination for um, adding, you know, new ways of thinking and new approaches with some well-learned expertise uh, and actually both when paired together Millennials and boomers um, both feel greater engagement and they, they like it. Like, I don't know my generation. I think I was the, I'm the little Gen, Gen X group. No one really wants to be paired with us, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's everything. It's if you wanted to create the best team, you would add in the most perspectives possible and look at your customer base and see if your team mirrors the segment of the population that you're potentially going to be serving or selling to, I guess. 
And if it does, then you're probably on your way to success. Let's talk about, you know, you mentioned earlier leaders creating a atmosphere of psychological safety. And, you know, we, in some circles, you hear that word a lot. And in other circles, I think it's brand new to a lot of leaders out there to build. I want to know what your version of building a um, environment of psychological safety, whether it's in a classroom at a university or in any classroom for that matter. Uh, or in a a team working on a project versus a a group of people working together in the workplace. What, let me start there with what that means. Then I have a follow-up question for you. Yeah. So I would say it is encouraging people to feel safe to contribute and recognizing that failure is part of the process. So the thing that most people fear when they don't feel psychologically safe is that they're going to make a mistake and it's going to be held against them. And that means they, you know, they won't get the promotion. They will be punished for their idea if it's not successful Um, or they'll be judged or um, berated in some way. I mean, I think that's basically it. We want to hear from you and we want your novel ideas and you shouldn't feel that there's a huge risk associated with that. I'd like to talk to you. We're we're about uh, two days, quite almost forty eight hours exactly, as we're filming this podcast um, from the very tragic and sad shooting that happened in Boulder, Colorado, literally right around the corner from where we all work and all of our students are going to school. Uh, Ten people killed that day. We had a shooting uh, not too long ago in Atlanta. Um, in Georgia that killed um, eight people, I believe. And what is our role as leaders, do you think, especially in the classrooms with students that are having a really hard time um, with this nationally, let alone when it happened in their backyard? What is our role as leaders, do you think, in the classroom um, to build that psychological safety and address this with students? That, I mean, that is a, a tough question. Um, that King Super is five less than five minutes from my house on foot. I pass it every day if I leave the house. And I think that's more than psychological safety. I mean, that's, I think the concern is really safety, right? But I think there's a lot of um, emotional trauma that students are dealing with. So, you know, I think there's lots of emails circulating the university. I think they're really useful. Um, I think providing opportunities and resources for students is really step one. I think the university is doing a great job of that and we can reinforce that. I'll say in my class yesterday, um, even though the people had received the email with the resources, I asked a simple question of, did you receive the email with the resources? Do those make sense? And people were like, well, I wasn't really sure about this specific one. How often can I go or how do I get, or have you had people had good experiences with it? Um, So I think just opening that dialogue, not every faculty member is going to feel totally comfortable talking about this. You know, they, faculty members are human too. They might be experiencing and probably are experiencing their own trauma around it, but you can put that in an email. I guess my view is, uh, especially this week, which we have our mental health day tomorrow, um, is to really provide support for mental health and let the students know that this is important. It's not just 
push through. And when you get to the summer, you can take care of yourself because I think one thing we've learned this year <clears throat> is there's no pushing through. Like it just, if I just tried to make it till the end of COVID before I ever took care of myself, like I would have been in big trouble because it's been a year and we're, st I'm still in my basement. Um, and you know, more tragedy and trauma has ensued over the last year. So I think it's just, and I, I companies are doing this, so it's not just a faculty issue, but um, more and more organizations are making mental health part of their diversity and inclusion practice. Like it, it could, you could say it's part of HR, it's part of employee services, you could say it's part of strategy, it doesn't matter, but it needs to be part of something because you're, if your organization has the, you know, triple bottom line and multiple stakeholders, and one of them is the people, then you need to be taking care of your people. And, you know, I mentioned the military earlier, but I, this year had the opportunity to work with the army in Colorado Springs and some of their diversity work. And, you know, they're extremely focused on mental health and their tagline is people first, because they're realizing that, you know, this is a potentially traumatizing high stress job and they care deeply about their soldiers. And so that means caring about their mental health and making sure everyone's okay. I don't know if I answered your question there, but. Yeah, I, I would add, I've, I've, I've shared with my students that I, I, I heard you say that, you know, you've had rough patches too. And I, and I'm very transparent with my students say, Hey, uh, us, you know, faculty are not oblivious to this. We're struggling as well. And I, I think they appreciate that fact that, that you know, it, it, we're all struggling in some way. We, we all have our bad days. So I think that's, that's important to share with them. Uh, at least I believe that. Um, and just have the conversation, you know, to actually bring up the, the, the words mental health in the classroom. I've had more than a few students say, uh, thank you for doing that. So I think those are ways that, that we can help them. Let me ask you this, Stephanie, do you think, I mean, it's pretty easy to say we just, you know, we've been in isolation in, in some form for a year. Is this a COVID situation? Is mental health, it's easy to talk about mental health right now. Do you think we'll still be talking about this in a year or two years or five years? Yeah, I think so. I think it's been a growing crisis across the U.S., whether it's, you know, drug use. I think in, people have been studying mental health in college students and the increase in anxiety and depression among college students was happening, you know, well before COVID. I don't think it's COVID related, but I will say, at least for me, so I don't know if this is, this isn't data, <laughs> it's an anecdote, but I've had a lot more time to think about it because normally I'll say pre-COVID, I think my life involves running from one thing to the next, like physically running across campus to get from my class to my meeting, to pick up my kids at school, to take them to karate, to bring them home and make dinner while they're at karate and feed them to get them ready for bed. And it's like, and then I fall asleep because I'm just tired. And, and I would say this year without all of those things, in some ways, that was a, a huge blessing to say like, wow, I actually can choose what I want to do with my time. But it also meant that I really had an opportunity to think about like, wow, you know, what are the things that I really appreciate or what are the things I really miss or what are the things I need? And I don't know that I thought about that stuff. I'm not like a particularly reflective person. I, some people really do think about themselves in this way, but 
I don't know that I had that opportunity, but with just so much endless free time or like time in my house with just my, you know, my two kids and my husband, I certainly, I couldn't help but think about it. You know, it's like so in your face. And for me, one of the biggest things is I think I talk to people and I say, Hey Ron, how's it going? And you say, it's great. How are you? And I say, awesome. And that's it. Right. But I think something's completely changed since COVID that I say, Hey Ron, how's it going? And you're like, you know, I'm having a really difficult week. My mom had a COVID scare. I was really worried about her health. And like, people are just kind of getting real. Like, I don't know if it's the running around. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I just feel like there's people have kind of let down the walls and are confronting for themselves or with the people they care about, like what they're experiencing. What a great move in the right direction, in my opinion. Although I got to go back to you have been deeply involved in leadership for, I don't know, we're not going to say how many years, but for a while. Um, and you're not reflective. How is that possible, Stephanie? Are you, would you, are you, no. would you classify She's yourself busy. As, as extroverted or introverted? I think I'm introverted. And, you know, I have this, like, we have this awesome PhD student, Phoenix Van Wagner, who one of his chapters in his dissertation is on reflection and why that's so important to leadership. And I, I know it is important. I, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm not, I'm busy. I think that's my, that's yeah, my yeah. written excuse. I'm sticking to it. One of the things that I like to talk about in class, I think you also like to talk about it, is this idea of unconscious bias. Um, and sometimes I ask my students, after they get to know what unconscious bias is, and I will ask you that, Stephanie, kind of to give our listeners a little bit of a background on what that is. I ask them, for all the troubles it causes us, would we be better off if we just got rid of that? And so I guess my question to you Stephanie, well, it's twofold. Number one, what is unconscious bias? And, and number two, is it good or evil? Well, so unconscious bias to me is a paired association between two things that you often see in the environment that co-vary. So I might, if you think of a surgeon, I know this is true. Everyone thinks of a man. If you think of a nurse, unless you're married to a male nurse, people think of a woman, right? And having these associations, like if you think of a CEO, you think of a man, you know, if you think of a secretary, people think of a woman, having those associations help us navigate the, you know, 2 million pieces of information that are confronting us at any given moment and make sense of things. So if you're in the hospital and you need help and you're looking for a doctor, it's useful to be able to figure out that it's a person scrubs, right? Otherwise you're walking to each person saying like, are you a doctor? Are you a doctor? So it's not, I think it's not good or evil to your second question. It is a fact. And I guess it's good if I had to choose one or the other, because we wouldn't be able to make sense of the world without those cognitive shortcuts. It's only problematic when those biases that we have, those shortcuts, um, negatively impact certain groups. So maybe it impacts how we treat people. I can tell you, I have many uh, female friends who are doctors and they are tired of being called nurse, right? Or even, you know, myself as a female business professor, people <laughs> never, they don't have, there's not that many other women uh, business professors. And so people will most often not assume I am a professor. Instead, I might be 
um, a staff person. So people are like, can you copy this for me? And I'm like, no, I cannot, or I can actually, but I'm not going to. Um, and so it can, I think it creates problems in that way. So it's like you, you have these biases and in the same way you formed them, you need to be aware of them. And so that they don't impact your behavior, I think is the main thing. And I actually think that's nearly impossible to do. And so what my perspective on it is our biases are a lot smarter than we are. So probably not going to outsmart them, but we are able to rework systems in a way that remove the potential for bias to affect things like who we hire or who we promote or who we give opportunities to. You know, you can try to check your bias and just call everyone doctor rather than nurse. And if they say, oh, I'm a nurse, who cares, right? Like no, no harm, no foul. Um, or just before approaching someone and making a comment of like, can you bring me to your supervisor? Or, you know, there's all these things like that, that you can try to check your bias at the door if you're aware of the biases. But I think the real change is going to happen as the demographics in the United States change, as more women are graduating medical school today than men. And so I think those those paired associations between doctor and man will go away once it's not true that most doctors are men. And so I think if, you know, there's things we can do to change systems and structures, we can try to change the way we treat people. I think that's really important. But I think the bigger work is in like trying to change society and to create more opportunity so that all of the high ranking positions don't belong to one demographic group. And one of the ways we do that, obviously, is through collaboration, which is what I want to talk about really quick before we wrap up here. Um, I know as a member of the Center for Leadership Executive Committee, you're actually heading up the research arm for that committee. And I think you're wanting to um, start down some new avenues of research. And I'd like to talk about what that looks like for you and what help or um, other people that you would like to get involved. So uh, those that are out there saying, oh my gosh, I really wanna work with Stephanie, how do they do that? So what are you working on and how can people get involved? Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, thank you for bringing this up because I think this is my part in the center is really focusing on trying to bring together um, collaborative efforts to study leadership. I think probably that makes the most sense in looking at leader development among our students. We have a great opportunity. We have a huge population. This is something that is leadership training is pretty pervasive across campus. And so there's a huge opportunity for us to study the impact, you know, what is working, what's more effective, what's the impact on these students' futures. Like I believe that having the opportunity to learn about leadership can greatly improve people's lives. It empowers them. It gives them agency to feel like they have control. And so we can, I think we can study that. And we have so many great minds on campus already doing this type of work. Uh, we're also doing research around diversity and inclusion and mental health. And so if there are folks on campus who are studying this and interested in collaboration, the Center for Leadership, not only do we offer small seed grants, um, for research on campus, but um, we're also trying to bring together students who are interested in getting involved. I told you my story of doing research on leadership as a freshman in college, and I feel like I wish I could create the opportunity for other students. 
Um, so if you're interested, just you can email me, stephanie.johnson at Colorado. I don't know what it would look like. Like, you know, we have, there's always like data collection efforts, but we're pretty early. And so I think we're really at the point of opening up and saying, well, what is it that we want to start projects on? I think the obvious one being our own development of our student leaders. I think that's huge. Like what is, um, I believe that athletics plays a huge role in leader development. So, you know, looking at what are our students doing? What are the ROTC students getting out of that experience? And there's just so many great opportunities. And especially with those bridge areas of mental health and diversity and inclusion, I think probably everyone can collaborate with us. I love that. I love that opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to not only watch you do your work, but also get involved myself. I know that uh, I think we have some things that maybe uh, are in the future that we're going to work together on. So that'll be fun. So if you're interested in that, please uh, reach out to the Center for Leadership or Stephanie directly so that we can we can get you involved. Let's wrap this up with our signature last question, Stephanie. As you know, our uh, podcast is called Leadership Frontiers and we like to ask our guests where they think the frontier of leadership is. What is out there, maybe on the cutting edge, that you see or maybe you're passionate about or you'd like to see uh, that maybe we're not doing now that uh, we should be doing better in the future? I think it is trying to teach leaders to have greater empathy. I think empathy is, or I know empathy is a core leadership skill. Uh, it's one of the things that, if you're talking about mental health, how do you know if your employees are um, suffering? How can you create psychological safety? Well, some, some of that is just empathy. How do you know if the women on your team feel empowered? How do you know if the people of color on your team feel like they're getting the same opportunities? You ask them, like it's amazing. And if you actually listen and have empathy and try to understand different people's perspectives, you're going to get the best out of your employees. You're gonna be the most effective leader possible. And so I say this all the time and I have some exercises to build empathy, but I don't know that anyone's ever proven how effectively to bolster empathy in people. And are there differences? Like you know, some people are certainly more empathetic than others. Empathy is definitely a skill. You can get better at it and you can get worse at it. You know, like there's this great curve that shows you know, early level leaders are really good at listening. And then that kind of goes away as they do more of the talking, they lose that skill at um, listening. It would be great to have a, you know, three-step process to really instill empathy in young leaders or refresh empathy in senior leaders. Um, that could be one of our research studies that we do. But I think that could solve so many of these other concerns around diversity and inclusion, mental health, to just effectively developing all your employees, as Tara said, if you could just understand their perspective. Thanks for spending your valuable time with us this week. If you enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from these conversations. We'll see you next time.